My guest today is Professor Maria Luisa Allegre, who is Professor of Medicine at the University of Chicago. Her laboratory is interested in T-cell responses in settings of transplantation, autoimmunity, and cancer, with an emphasis on mouse models and emerging extensions of the clinical, clinical translation. Welcome, Melissa. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. So um, we want to talk about sort of your research focus, uh, and that is uh, rejection of transplanted organs. And uh, we have two distinct areas we want to talk about. But I want to go a little bit of a tangent, Marisa, before we get into your research. Um, and I, I don't know much, nothing much, uh, much about this, but when we put another person's um, organ uh, from X to Y, we have all sorts of complications happen. Are we anywhere close to getting sort of mechanical systems <laughs> into humans uh, in terms of organs? Um, you know, people are working on that. Maybe not so much mechanical as um, you can take an organ, decellularize it, take out all the cells and, and leave the scaffold of the organ and then repopulate it with stem cells that will generate all the different parts of the organ, all the different cells that form blood vessels and um, whatever cells the organ uh, needs uh, for, for its function. We're still, you know, a long time away from that um, being functional and being able to be transplanted in patients. Another thing, you know, that's one future of transplantation. Another future of transplantation is what we call xenotransplantation, which is transplantation of organs from uh, an animal into patients. Um, what uh, is being studied right now is uh, pig organs into patients because pigs are bred, um, you know, um, for, for food anyway, and so we can genetically alter um, the pigs to make them a little bit more compatible with humans and the, the organs are the right size, but that's also a little bit in the future. Yeah, so um, the, the scaffolding and stem cells um, research, um, stem cells are quite capable of growing into organs. And so we, we, we sort of direct them to to, to, to a specific organ you, type? You do it outside of the patient. You take the scaffold and then put stem cells from that patient into the scaffold. And, you know, I don't know the details because this is not what my, my lab works on, but uh, a lot of work is being done on trying to recreate an organ that functions normally. Yeah, so science fiction. So let's get to reality not, now. Not quite science fiction, but, uh, but into the future. The beauty of it is that it would be an organ with all the characteristics of the patient. It wouldn't be a foreign organ that the immune system recognizes as foreign, which is what happens now when you take an organ from another person into a patient. And that is where you spend a lot of your time on, and that is the sort of the state of the art today. So, so um, I want to go into your 2018 paper, Gut Microbes Contribute to Variation in Solid Organ Transplant Outcomes in Mice. So you say solid organ transplant recipients allocate to in the occurrence of 
occurrence and timing of acute rejection episodes. Understanding the factors responsible for such variability in patient outcomes may lead to improved diagnostics and therapeutic approaches. Rejection kinetics, you say, of transplanted organs mainly depends on the extent of genetic disparities between donor and recipient, but the role of uh, for environmental factors is emerging. I found this very, very interesting, um, Marissa, I knew nothing about this. So the, the gut reaction is when rejection happens, the body is just rejecting something it doesn't understand, and, and, and then that's the, that's the end of it. But, but what we're talking about here is that there is sort of a, a systemic effect. Part of it is driven by the gut microbiomes. Um, that, that's a fascinating thing. Yes. So, right. So when, when you put an organ into a patient, an organ from a different person, it's going to have all sorts of proteins that are slightly different um, that are going to be recognized by the patient's immune system as foreign, and the immune system is going to mount an immune response as if that transplanted organ was a virus, an infection, something foreign, something that the body has to reject. Um, and the, the strength with which the immune system is mounting that response depends on how many genetic differences there are between the donor and the recipient. So if you have an identical twin, for example, you will accept that organ because it's genetically identical to your organs. If you have a sibling, it's going to be 50% identical. And so the immune response is perhaps not going to be as strong. If you have somebody completely unrelated uh, and depending on you know, how many differences there are, the immune response is going to be stronger. So that's definitely the, the most important part that determines how strongly uh, immune responses and how fast an organ is going to be rejected um, if you don't give immunosuppression. Of course, our patients are treated with immunosuppressive drugs so that the organ is not rejected. But my lab has been interested in addition to those things that you cannot change, who you're getting the organ from and, and um, how your immune system recognizes those differences. My lab has become interested in environmental factors that can modulate a little bit as a like a rheostat, modulate the intensity of that response and the gut microbiota, and not only the gut microbiota, probably your whole body microbiota is one of these factors that can modulate up or down the strength of the response against the organ. Uh, and we have studied both the gut microbiota, we have studied the skin microbiota when we put a, a skin transplantation, and we do this mostly in mice, although we're starting to extend these, uh, these studies into patients um, now or into uh, avatars of patients. Uh, I can explain that a little bit more. Um, but um, yeah, we can see in mice, for example, we can transplant a heart or a kidney or uh, pancreatic eyelids or a skin graft, and we can change um, the composition of the microbiota um, either by giving antibiotics to um, the host or simply by um, taking different mice that come from different farms 
um, and they harbor different microbiotas uh, in their guts and in their, on their skin because they come from different areas of the country and different farms and they're handled by different people. Um, and we can put transplants uh, on these animals and see that um, the, the speed with which they reject these organs is different depending on the composition of the, the microbiota and, um, you know, depending on the antibiotics that we give uh, as well, or depending on even probiotics that we can give these, these animals. Yeah, so, so simplistically, Marisa, if I think about outcome as a function of genetic um, aspects and some sort of environmental effect, such as uh, microbiome, um, what is so? I'm I'm thinking. So going going to the mice experiments that you you run. Suppose you go many many generations from you know the original mouse, <laughs> uh, many generations into uh, the process. Um, how much? How, so what I'm trying to do is you know how how does the genetic component sort of die out? Uh, how many generations does it take for the genetic component to have less of an effect? Um, so we can keep the genetic component completely different between the donor and the recipient by taking different mouse strains that are genetically completely different. And that elicits a very strong immune response from the host of the transplant. Or we can take like identical twins between the mice, and, and that takes about 20 generations of interbreeding mice um, with one another for them to become completely genetically identical if they started off as being different. Mm. Um, and then when they're genetically identical, then um, the grafts are accepted, um, except um, if there is a big difference in the microbiota um, and um, I mean, this is a study that uh, we are working on um, to try and see if um, if you have a, a, a memory response, if you've been exposed to some microbiota before and have a memory response against that microbiota, what happens when you receive a graft that has microbiota that your immune system is going to recognize in a very strong way? Um, and just that, even if the genetics of the two mice are identical, just that can induce some damage uh, of the, the organ that's colonized with that particular microbiota. So history matters. Um, yes, your, for the, the history for the... and your exposure to infections and environmental antigens, the memory that you develop, uh, that your immune system develops over time definitely matters. So, so let me take a, a quick uh, detour, uh, Marisa, nothing to do with, with your research. So we had this COVID-19 <laughs> sort of uh, coming up with all sorts of variations. Um, the T-cell memory aspects. Um, so, so do we know what level of genetic mutations would um, you know sort of transcend that memory? Uh, do we have some sort of heuristic? Uh, I'm thinking specifically about COVID-19 here. Well, for COVID-19, memory is good. 
right? You want mm. to elicit memory responses so that you can generate the correct immune response to limit the infection, to, to limit how many cells the, the virus is going to infect and uh, limit um, once it replicates its uh, infection of other cells. So memory is definitely good. Um, what if when you have variations, um, is, it, is it that, so if the memory is very good and very specific, let's say, against X, and then X prime is slightly different, <laughs> uh, right. how, how, how will it work? How, how does it work? Yeah. So, um, I mean, for COVID-19, for many viruses, one very important component of the immune response is the production of antibodies. These antibodies are going to bind the surface of the virus, and the virus is using one particular protein on its surface, spike, to bind the receptor on your own cells and enter the cells. And that's what the infection is, the virus binding a cell and then going inside the cell and replicating inside the cell. Yeah. The role of your antibodies, for them to be called neutralizing antibodies, is to be able to bind the spike protein in the area where it wants to bind the receptor of your cells and block that binding, prevent that binding. Now, if the spike molecule becomes mutated sufficiently so that your antibodies are not blocking its ability to bind the receptor, or if it changes the receptor to which it's going to bind because it's changed so much, then the antibodies are not going to be effective anymore and are not going to prevent the infection. So that memory that you have developed against the original spike protein will not be protective against something, a virus that has mutated so much that the antibodies will not block its ability to enter cells. Yes, yeah, so, um, transplant rejection is sort of in the same vein, right? So that the body thinks it's something, something like a virus. And uh, yeah, so for transplantation, memory is bad. If you have <laughs> memory responses against, um, you know, proteins that are expressed by your donor, you're going to mount a much more vigorous immune response and it's going to be more difficult to um, find the right immunosuppressive agents and give enough of them to prevent the rejection. So what's very good, you know, the immune system, the purpose is really to fight infections. And, and for that, memory is very good to fight infections. But if you generate memory that can recognize a graft or transplantation, that's not good. It's a problem, yeah. So a, a very strong immune system with strong memory are really good things for most people. But if, if we need to put something else into the body to save the body, then it becomes quite difficult. Right. In right. that sense, right? Right. So the immunosuppressing drugs um, is sort of, sort of uh, making the immune system go less effective? Is that, is that what happens? Yes, it weakens the ability of the immune system to recognize the, the graft. It makes the, the cells that would become activated when they see the graft, it dampens that activation so that these T cells 
or these uh, immune cells cannot function um, quite as well. And, and, you know, people have to take, unfortunately, these immunosuppressive drugs for the rest of their lives. Um, and, um, you know, transplantation has been fantastic. It has saved so many lives. And it's uh, wonderful when you have a patient who has kidney failure and has to go to dialysis three times a week, four hours at a time. The quality of life, the side effects of the dialysis are um, very problematic. And to be able to replace the kidney and have a functioning kidney is, is just wonderful. But then you end up with side effects from the medications that have to be used to suppress your immune system so that the graft is not rejected. Um, and so one, one goal in transplantation, that's the, the second um, arm of what my, my lab is working on, is to try and get away from um, those global immunosuppressive drugs that you have to take for the rest of your life and try and trick the immune system of the host into thinking that the transplant that the host has received is self, is your own organ. Um, and so we can do some, uh, some treatments, short-term treatments, um, and try and inactivate the immune cells that specifically recognize the transplant. Um, and that works um, you know, quite well in mice. Um, it works less well in humans, in part because humans have a lot more memory because they have all these past exposures to many things. And these memory cells are more difficult to immunosuppress. Mm. It's sort of a software reprogramming problem. Exactly, uh, yes. <laughs> right? that, that's exactly right. That's a good way to, to put it, yeah. So all these memories that these T cells, the immune system is carrying, you need to somehow uh, reprogram them. Um, but we don't have technology to do that yet, <laughs> I would imagine. Right? Well, I mean, we're, we're working on it. Um, there are, um, so we, we know how to program naive cells that have not seen the antigens before. And uh, a lot of groups are working on trying to reprogram the, the memory cells. Um, you know, I think it's, uh, it's evolving in the right direction. And uh, I'm hopeful that there will be better therapies in, in a not too distant future. Yeah, so one of the things, I don't know if I quite understand this, Melissa. One of the things I, I noticed in the paper is that um, sometimes things sort of work out and then the patient gets an infection and all hell breaks loose again. Uh, so it's almost like the immune system is saying, if everything is working out okay, I'm going to just stay quiet. But if there is an infection, I have to go fight it. And then I'm going to fight everything. Is that, is that how it works? Yeah, that's right. So um, there are a few patients who develop what we call tolerance to the transplant. Um, where you can stop the immunosuppression after 10 years, let's say, of, of having taken the immunosuppression, and a very small subset of patients will be, remain stable. The immune system will not be activated when these immunosuppressive drugs are stopped. It's a very small subset of the, the transplant recipients, but it's a subset that can be studied. 
And so in these patients that have developed tolerance, by whatever means, you can follow them uh, over time and see who remains tolerant and who loses the tolerance and, and ends up rejecting their, their organ, which um, you know, in this case can be a kidney or a, or a liver. And you're right that there, are, um, there is a, a clinical correlation between having infections and developing episodes of rejection. Um, it's not completely clear in the clinic with patients whether it's causal, whether the infection is really what causes the episode of rejection. But we have been able to model that in mice where we can give a short-term treatment uh, along with the transplant and then stop the treatment. And the transplant is accepted forever in the absence of infection, but if we infect the mice with an infection that's uh, quite severe, that induces a lot of inflammation, that infection can trigger rejection of the organ. Um, and so we can work out exactly what type of inflammation is responsible for the rejection. Um, and then we can try and work out how would you prevent rejection if you have an infection. Um, that's really interesting. So is it the infection or is it the inflammation? We talked a bit about inflammation in, in a couple of other shows that inflammation, you know, the body is sort of, sort of throwing the red flag, uh, come get me and, and fix it. Um, is it. Is it inflammation that sort of yes. triggers inflammation? So the yeah. infection triggers inflammation. Inflammation is just the immune system responding to um, a foreign um, threat and an infection is a foreign threat. So you have immune cells that are activated and start releasing small molecules. We call them cytokines that are inflammatory molecules that, uh, you know, if you cut yourself, you're going to develop some redness and some swelling and, and pain. And that's a local inflammation. And you can have that more um, systemically everywhere in the body when you have an infection that's very severe. Um, so it's, uh, it's the response to the infection leading to inflammation. And in our case, it's the inflammation. So we can recapitulate in these mice that are tolerant. If we infect them, a subset of the mice reject. But if in uninfected mice, we can give them inflammation uh, simply by delivering these uh, cytokines that form the inflammation, and that also induces a subset of these mice to reject. So in, in, in our model, at least, uh, it's inflammation that's deleterious, and it's not all inflammation. It has to be severe. It has to be of a certain type. Um, so, you know, most of the time it will be okay, but uh, in certain severe infections, uh, it will lead to rejection in the mice and, and perhaps in, in people. Yeah, so I know nothing about this medicine. So I was thinking, you know, inflammation is sort of a wake-up call for the immune mm -hmm. system. And so in a, in a transplanted organ, in a transplanted uh, patient, if you keep inflammation low, um, would that sort of, uh, I don't know what, what the right mechanism might be, but if you can somehow keep the inflammation at bay, 
then the, the rejection risk is a lot lower, right? Yes, so that's that's completely true. Uh, if we infect our mice and we block some of these inflammatory mediators, we prevent rejection. In humans, though, it's a kind of a double-edged thing <laughs> because inflammation is important to get rid of the infection. So you want to block the inflammatory mediators that trigger rejection but not the ones that are necessary to get rid of the infection. So uh, it's a little bit tricky. Yeah, so in, in, a, in a regular uh, person, there's sort of an optimum inflammation regime. For a transplanted um, organ patient, it has to move to the left somehow, right? I mean, <laughs> if, if, it, if it sort of works like a regular patient, then and it just moved to the left by the immunosuppressive drugs that we are giving. It's, uh, yeah. you know, it's uh, more for the future. If you were able to stop the immunosuppression and, and trick the immune system into thinking that the organ is your own organ, then um, what happens when you have inflammation? Because there you don't have the safety net of the immunosuppressive drugs that you are giving. Um, so you would probably need to give some immunosuppressive drug during the infection that would still allow you to clear the infection, but would protect the graft. It, it lets you buy time a little right. bit. So, yes. Um, yes. so, so I want to talk about the, the, the sort of the T-cell memory aspects. Um, and so it, it seems to me that history is quite important. Every person is different. We've been talking about personalized medicine forever, yes. but uh, everything that we do is, you know, sort of still the manufactured um, pharmaceutical product regime. Um, so, so, so when you when you have a patient who needs a transplantation, I wondered if you can sort of plug in that patient to some, you know, when we take an automobile to get it uh, get it uh, fixed. They, they have this machine that they plug the automobile in and it reads all the computer stuff and all the all the data and they will say, this is the problem and then you're going to fix it this way. Um, is that possible for a human in the future? I mean, what, what we are lacking is information about that particular human, right? Yeah, I think it, uh, it uh, may be possible in the future. Um, there are different components to, to consider. Um, the fact that each donor is also going to be different. Um, and so if you think of yourself receiving a transplant, um, you're going to have developed a, a set of memory responses against different things. But let's say that 10% of that are going to be important for the rejection of one of organ from one particular donor, but maybe 30% of those are going to be important and they may not be overlapping for the rejection of another donor. So you need to understand um, the immune response to your particular donor um, if you wanted to, um, to uh, kind of target the cells specifically the cells of your immune system that recognize your particular donor. 
uh, and not the cells that recognize viruses and pathogens and you know and uh, or or cells of a different donor. So it, it's a little bit tricky in the sense that um, right now um, there's a lot of uh, uh, cadaveric organ uh, transplantation where um, somebody dies and uh, we harvest the organs and transplant them into a recipient. And so you don't know ahead of time who the donor is going to be. Um, there's also some living um, donor transplantation where you know you have two kidneys, you only need one, and you and give you can donate your kidney to somebody else who who needs a kidney. In that case, we would know who the donor is and who the recipient is. And so in, in that case, it may be a little bit uh, easier to figure out exactly what components the immune system is recognizing um, ahead of time. But but so it's complex. Um, it's a complex problem. So so do we have algorithms and heuristics that we can apply to a, a, a donor or a prospective donor to assign a probability that rejection could happen? Um, uh, I, the, I, I missed uh, the beginning of your question. Yeah, so Treatments that could be applied to a donor? Yeah, so since we have a lot of data around this now, I wonder, can we assign a probability that an objection oh, could happen based on the donor yes. characteristics? Yes, yes, absolutely. This is something that uh, uh, the clinicians do all the time. Um, the, the lab looks at what antibodies you have, whether they recognize your particular donor or not. This is how you create matches. Um, and, and you know if your um, donor is a, is a good match or not. And if, uh, you know, there's a, 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 a smaller likelihood that there are going to be problems. So, um, yeah, so th that's done all the time and it's uh, very, very useful. So can you run a little experiment um, prior to the, the decision uh, to so, see what the chance okay, so one, uh One way that this is done, for example, is measuring the antibodies in the person who needs a transplant and then uh, looking at what uh, sets of proteins they recognize. And there is, you know, one particular set of proteins that's called HLA uh, molecules that are very different between different people. So a lot of the antibodies are made against these proteins are so variable because they're different from your own. Um, and um, and so one way that uh, this is done to try and find a person who's compatible with you as a, as a donor is to to measure whether you have antibodies that can bind these molecules from your donor. And if you don't, then it's fine. Um, you're still going to want to reject the organ. You still need to receive immunosuppression. But if you have a high titer of antibodies. Uh, it's almost impossible, even with uh, strong immunosuppression, to prevent rejection. So you you need to find you know donor that with whom you are compatible or that's compatible with you. So so do we have any technologies, Marisa? So suppose I find you know the the compatibility is ninety percent or whatever, right? So there's a there's a ten percent um, incompatibility, let's say. Do we have any technology to sort of take the donated organ to, to manipulate it to become <laughs> more yeah. So this is also something that uh, several groups are working on. Um, 
you have to harvest the organ from the donor of the organ. And so you have an opportunity before transplanting it to modify it. And you can, you can flush it with uh, different reagents. Um, you can even genetically manipulate it in theory by putting, I mean, similar, um, you're putting constructs that um, can, um, uh, can encode molecules um, that are going to make the organ a little bit less uh, uh, immunogenic, we call it. So that's going to elicit a, a less strong immune response. You can try and reduce expression of certain molecules that are targets of the immune system. And so if you reduce their expression, the immune system doesn't see them as much and the organ is going to be accepted more easily. So these are all things that people are working on, um, you know, more experimentally in, in animal models. Um, but yeah, that's also an opportunity to genetically manipulate a human organ to make it more compatible with a recipient. I mean, one could go through a trial and error process. I don't know how much time one has <laughs> in this, but um, you, you could you could try something and you could test it and you could try something else. And by trial and error, you could bring the, the donated organ to almost a perfect match possibly in the future. Yeah, not not the perfect match. Uh, <laughs> I think a perfect match would be more what we talked in the beginning, the scaffold, and then making your own organ with your own stem cells um, so that all your molecules are, are matched, all your proteins are matched. Uh, it would be very difficult to um, uh, inhibit expression of all the different proteins that can be recognized by the immune system. Um, but, but you can inhibit some key ones. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem with biology is that it's too uncertain. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we know a lot of uh, how things work and, and, and so uh, undoing them, I mean, it's, it's a lot of things to, uh, to undo um, and that would be very complicated to, to do. But I think, um, you know, generating your own organs um, would be the most promising in that sense. There's also other techniques, for example, um, diabetic people can be transplanted with uh, pancreatic islets that uh, make insulin. So there's a lot of research also into encapsulating these islets with semi-permeable membranes that allow the insulin to come out, but doesn't allow the immune cells to come in and reject the islets. So for, for things like pancreatic islets, I think that has a future as well. You can't do that for a kidney because you, you can't prevent, you have to suture the blood vessels of the recipient to the kidney. Uh, and so the cells of the immune system will go into the kidney or the heart or the liver. But with pancreatic islets, where you don't have to suture blood vessels, you can in theory encapsulate them and protect them. Yes, it could have an encapsulated pancreas, and not the whole no... pancreas, just the, the islets, which yes. are okay. Just that's what uh, it's only one cell type that makes insulin, and that's the only thing that the diabetic person is going to need. 
So chance of attack is lower, but you still get the, the beneficial effects of the transplantation. So, so you mentioned this medicine. There's a, if there's a identical twins who grew up together, lived in the same house, went to the same university, ate the same food, then the chance of match is extremely high, right? So genetically, they are identical, even if they live in completely different places and uh, uh, have completely different diets and are raised by different people, their cells will be identical at birth. Um, there are some mutations that are accumulated by everybody uh, from the time you are born to the time you die, you accumulate more and more mutations. So um, people will diverge a little bit, but um, for the, the most part, they will remain genetically almost identical and their organs will be accepted um, by, by the other. Um, if you have to transplant an organ that is colonized by microbiota, like you know, the skin or the lung, which is exposed to the outside and has some microbes in it, or the intestine that's colonized with microbiota, the microbiota between identical twins is going to be different because the microbiota is different uh, between every, every person. Um, that alone is not going to be sufficient to induce rejection, so they will still be fine. Um, but it, uh, if you have some genetic differences, it can compound the genetic differences and make the rejection worse. Okay, so. So if I understand you correctly, Mary, so you're saying the hardware is really the fundamental driver still. It's a yes. genetic match. Yes. It's a fundamental driver. And the environmental aspects is noise around that. But yes. it becomes more of a, sometimes it becomes important noise because you, you, have, you have issues with it. Um, if you go in the other direction, uh, which is, so I don't know if there's any data on this, but when you look at, uh, transplantation from one country to another. So suppose, you know, country X and country Y, and we assume that country X sort of has the same dietary habits, potentially sort of a similar microbiome structure, I don't know. And then you get an organ from country Y into country X. Um, do we have any data to say that, you know, the, I'm just uh, sort of trying to tease out the what's the environment, if you control for the environment, say everybody's living in this place, they eat the same food, they, you know, they share a lot of the, the common microbiome. Do we know if, uh, how much of an effect that might be? In mice, where we can control all of that exactly, it makes a difference. If you if you equalize the microbiota, um, you can make the transplantations behave in exactly the same way in everybody. In humans, though, with globalization, um, you know, even if people so the microbiota is determined certainly a lot by the diet and uh, say that everybody starts eating McDonald's and everybody has the same diet, it's also influenced by the genetics. And people are very genetically diverse and in this global uh, culture. People are coming from all sorts of different places, even if they live in the same city and, uh, and are just eating McDonald's um, food, right? So their microbiota is still going to be different. 
Um, so it's, uh, you know, it, it's uh, diet and genetics. You have on the one side identical twins, their genetics are the same, but then the diet and the environment makes that their microbiota is different. And then on the other side, you have identical food, but different genetics, and the microbiota is still going to be different. Yeah, so I know you talk about sort of diff so um, hyperacute rejection, acute rejection, chronic uh, rejection. Um, do we see any differentials there in terms of, so, so suppose, you know, it's identical twins. Um, I, I, I suppose it will be more chronic rejection that we would they don't have No, they don't have rejection because they're genetically right. identical, so they are fine. Um, people who have, who are not identical twin, but um, they're close genetically, but just a little bit different. Um, yes, they probably will have a lower likelihood to have acute rejection. Um, and depending on their level of immunosuppression, they could still develop chronic rejection. Um, but chronic rejection can can develop in you know pretty much everybody, um, and and that's uh, still a little bit of a problem with the immunosuppressive drugs that we're giving because if you immunosuppressed people completely, where their immune system did not function at all, the grafts would never be rejected. Um, but you can't do that because then they wouldn't be able to fight infections or, or cancer at all. So it's a little bit of a balance where you have to maintain in, enough immune function to fight infections and get rid of cancers, but not enough to get rid of the beneficial transplant. Um, yeah, I mean, ideally, we don't want to suppress the immune system because that has a lot of deleterious effects. You want to, you want to suppress the immune system selectively, only the cells that recognize your transplant. You want to trick it somehow. Yes. Right? Um, and so, so, so what would be the therapeutic direction here, Marisa? Can you trick the immune system through drugs or what would be the right therapeutic direction? Yeah, yeah. So, so there are different ways in which the immune system can be, can be tricked. Um, clinical trials that are ongoing right now are um, by transplanting not only a kidney, but transplanting at the same time bone marrow stem cells from a donor to try and um, make a new immune system that as it develops in the bone marrow of the recipient of the graft, it's going to be educated to um, to recognize those donor proteins as a self. So that's one way that is, um, you know, being quite successful in clinical trials, but that uh, cannot yet be applied more, more widely. Another way that uh, my lab is working on is by blocking certain signals on immune cells that are important for their activation and their recognition of the graft. Um, and by giving those therapies just around the time of transplantation for about two weeks after transplantation, um, you're affecting only the immune cells that are being activated at that time, which means the cells that recognize the transplant. Uh, and, um, and so we can give that 
uh, inhibit those signals and then stop the treatment. And now we have those cells that recognize the transplant that are inactivated long term and the other cells that didn't recognize the transplant that are still completely competent to fight infections and cancers. So, so I don't know if I understood the first part of what we're saying, Marissa. So is this sort of a conditioning of the recipient in, in some way? So suppose we feed the recipient. I, <laughs> I don't know how you guys do this, but you know, uh, give the recipient some information, small doses right. of information to condition to expect something. That 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 is sort of what. Yeah, what not. Uh, you have to condition it. Uh, by telling it exactly the the molecules that it has to become tolerant to. Um, and so you can do that either by giving it bone marrow from the donor so that the cells that develop uh, into the cells that will reject the organ won't reject the organ because they are tolerized during the, the development. Um, or you can... Um, inhibit specifically the, the signals that we're using. Um, another uh, avenue that uh, my lab has been exploring a little bit is, uh, you, I'm thinking about it because you're talking about feeding the, the immune system. So um, there is a thing that's called oral tolerance. Um, so you want your immune system not to respond to dietary antigens and to the microbiota that's in your gut. You want to be tolerant to the food that, uh, that you eat. And the majority of people are tolerant to dietary antigens. Some people, of course, are allergic to peanuts or strawberries or shellfish, um, but the majority of people are tolerant. And so there's, a, um, there's something that happens when you eat an antigen that uh, makes the immune system accept that and not mount an immune response. Mm. And so there are groups, um, and we've revisited this very recently, um, who have tried feeding antigens from a graft to try and use that route that's a, a natural route for tolerance mm. to make the immune system specific for the graft um, tolerant. Um, it hasn't worked well in the past because, um, you know, it's hard to know exactly how you have to give those antigens. The, the stomach is a harsh environment, very acidic, and it breaks down a lot of the, the products that you're giving. Um, but, but that may be something that can be explored a little bit more. Yeah, I was also wondering, if the donor is alive, just like you attempt to condition the recipient, you could potentially try to condition the donor too. I think that's hard. You don't want it. <laughs> the donor is healthy. You don't want to mess with that too much. <laughs> right. So, um, so I want to finish up with um, your research in the T cell arena. And um, I mean, you, you talk about um, resilience of T cell intrinsic dysfunction and transplantation tolerance. So this is sort of, we, we talk a little bit about this, the, the antigen from the donor and the antigen from, of, of the recipient, they have to do some sort of a dance, right, in the body for this to work. Um, and, and so 
I'm really fascinated by this, Marissa, that the, the teaser memory aspect, that things seem to work for a while and then something bad happens and then things don't work. Um, it's sort of like the Microsoft Windows crash, <laughs> <laughs> you know, the, the blue screen, you have to reboot the whole thing again. Um, is it is it sort of the, the system going haywire because it can't figure out what to do? Um, not, I, I'm not sure I would say it cannot figure out what to do. It's seeing that there's a danger, there's inflammation, there's something that's going on, there's an infection, it has to respond, and there are unintended consequences to that on these cells that, uh, you know, you've taken so much pain to try and tolerate and make them accept the transplant. And then suddenly they're exposed to all these inflammatory um, factors and they can't stay quiet anymore. And it, it reacts to it. Um, and so, so in conclusion, Marissa, you know, so if you look forward five, 10 years, I know that you have done a lot of work in this area. Um, looks like technology is improving, but we haven't really gone to a point that we have, you know, high confidence that transplant from another person is going to work. Uh, where do you think we will be, say, five, ten years into the future? I mean, I think things have improved enormously because we can transplant organs, um, we can save lives, and in the very short term, at one year, five years, um, we have very, very good um, survival of the graft, survival of the patients. However, there's a lot more that needs to be done because of these problems of chronic rejection, of even if you have accepted a transplant, you can be exposed to infections and inflammation that can destabilize. And so there's a lot more research. You know, we need financing by agencies and government to be able to tackle these questions. So as, as things become better and the patients are doing better and better, what are the problems that remaining that need to be addressed by, by research and where we can improve things? So that's uh, kind of going from what we already have that's working well and make it much better so that now Patients are not just okay for five years or 10 years, but patients are okay for the rest of their lives. And they just need one transplant for the rest of their life. In parallel to that, you know, I think there are teams that uh, are working on the next frontier with these um, regenerated organs and, and created organs and with um, xenotransplantation from pigs and modifying pigs genetically so that they become compatible with the recipient and, you know, manipulating the, the organs as you remove them to make them less stimulatory for the immune system. So there are many advances that uh, will make great leaps, um, but also advances, you know, more progressive. Um, making patients better and better after the, the, the current approach of transplanting cadaveric organ donors or living uh, organs. 
Yeah, my, my dream is, is that we have a mechanical organ with a remote control. And so rather than insulin, you know, you just uh, press the switch a little bit higher. <laughs> yeah. uh, but um, I, I think technology is improving in that direction too, in some ways, right? I mean, we, we might be walking around in the future with variety of mechanical things hanging from our brain and all sorts of things <laughs> that sort of drive us externally. Do you think that's possible? I don't know. I think we would need to talk to people who work in robotics. I cannot imagine a robotic heart or a robotic uh, kidney or robotic uh, liver. I think you can use um, external devices for a while. So. Um, for functions of the, the kidney, for example. I mean, we, we have dialysis already, right? So there, there are ways to replace the kidney function by taking the blood out of a patient, making it go through a machine, removing toxins and everything and reinfusing it. Um, it's just, you know, um, very, very cumbersome with a lot of side effects and very disruptive in terms of uh, quality of life. Um, if you could do that with a little pump that you attach to your waist, uh, and that's similarly efficacious, uh, maybe something like that could work. Um, and, you know, it could be, I don't know that field, there, it could be that uh, people who work on robotics and things like that are, are studying that. Um, yeah, I mean, we have insulin pump now. It used to be pretty, you know, tough. You have this mm -hmm. big needles that you stick in <laughs> into your arm uh, or your body to to get the insulin. So that 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 has been replaced by highly uh, self-regulating uh, insulin pumps. Um, but the purification things, as you say, in dialysis and other yeah, things. other things are more complex, right? One thing is just secreting insulin in response to levels of glucose in your blood. And another thing is all the complicated functions that the, the kidney does or the liver does or or the lung. How you know, how could you oxygenate the the blood without the lungs? It's theoretically possible, but uh, Yeah, the only conclusion we can reach is that the humans are badly designed machines. I don't think so. I think the humans are amazingly well designed machines. I mean, imagine we're self-repairing. You create a wound and you repair. Um, you get an infection, and you know most people are are able to eliminate it. I think it's uh, an amazing machine that we have. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great, Marisa. Thanks so much for spending time with me. My pleasure. It's uh, great being here. Thank you.